Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, and I want to focus a little bit on a verse that, that we read, that we read last time. Romans chapter 2, we're going to read again verse 16 and then we'll move onward. Romans 2.16 On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. God is going to judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. This is an amazing passage. That he's going to judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You know, I want I want to uh, read a portion... Uh, again, this is from, from uh, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, which, again, I'll give it a plug. It's a great book. Uh, but she is citing Andy Crouch, who's a Christian leader and uh, uh, Christian writer. Andy Crouch's son, actually, play, attends this class, and he plays in our church service, and he's practicing right now. He's the one who's on stage in the early and the later service playing the, the viola. So, but his father writes this. Um, it, this is in an article uh, in, that he wrote in 2018 on the dangers of celebrity power in the church. He says, if you knew the full condition of my heart, my fantasies and grievances, my anxieties, my darkest solitary thoughts, you would declare me a danger to myself and others. I cannot be entrusted with power by myself, certainly not with celebrity, and neither can you. He sees in us a wickedness in our hearts that is apparent to all of us concerning our own hearts. And and uh, um, Rebecca McLaughlin goes on and she, she, writes, she writes this. She says, uh, It has been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? My marriage would die. My children would be crushed. My friends would leave. My thoughts are not all bad. Many are good and kind and true. But like a bag of flour infested with maggots, no part of me is pure. This dawned on Alexander Solzhenitsyn as he was lying on rotting straw in a Soviet gulag. He said, quote, Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That's where the line of evil is. The evil runs right through the line of our hearts. And Paul says in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 15, verse 16, On that day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The greatest portion of that verse is Christ Jesus. It's going to be run through Christ Jesus. He is my protection. He is my hope. He is the one who protects me. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus we stand. Our hearts are so desperately sick, who can understand it? This is what Paul is exposing. So what he does 
we, we've been reading this. So in, in chapter 1 he, of, of Romans, he went after the barbarian. That's how, he, how it's described in verse 14. I am under obligation both to the Greek and to the barbarian. The barbarian is what we would call pagan, or the uneducated Greeks. He went right after them first, and he was saying that you deny the evidence of nature. You deny it, there's a denial of the truth that's given in nature. And then he went after the cultured Greek. He says, you're not without guilt either. And that started in chapter 2 of of the book of Romans. And he went after the cultured Greek and he just finished it in verse 16. And he says, there's hypocrisy in your lives because you think that you don't have these things, but yet you do. He said, you're no different and you deny the truth. Just like he said of the barbarian in chapter 1, verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. If you look in chapter 2, verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, they too were not obeying the truth and they were selfishly ambitious. And he said, you suffer from hypocrisy. Now where he's going to go right after the Jew. So he goes after the Greek, the culture Greek and the barbarian, and then he goes after the Jew. And let's pick it up in verse 17 of Romans chapter 2. Verse 17. But if you bear, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and you know His will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and a light to those who are in darkness, corrector of the foolish, teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You are, you therefore, who teach another. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So that, so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And the praise is not from men, but from God. So he goes right after the Jew. I mean, this is an amazing chapter. What on earth is Paul doing here? He says in chapter 1, he says in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He says, you know, this is a great church. He says, I've never been able to visit you yet, but here's a letter for you. And he says, your faith, the faith of this Roman church is, is better than any other church around. I mean, everybody's talking about your faith. He's not hitting this church like he did the church in Corinth because of their their vile disobedience. But he says to them in chapter 1, he says, says, uh, verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you in my prayers. 
always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, and may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. He says, I wish I were with you guys. You guys are tremendous. Well, if they're that, if we're that tremendous, what are you doing? I mean, you're destroying us. You come in here, and you, you start, you start one people group after another. You tell us how we're doomed, how we're hypocrites. And it's interesting, Paul absolutely, unapologetically writes this. And what he gave to them was an amazing gift. He gave them this book, which is this whole book on justification by faith. Remember, they didn't have the book of Romans before he sent them this letter. They may have had, they may have had, uh, the accounts of the gospels and that's it. We don't even know if they had shared the letters that had been written to these other churches yet. And so what Paul does is he gives them this amazing treasure. But this amazing treasure, he starts with this. It, it, it's like he wanted to get their attention. When I was first presented with the gospel, I was asked to read for the verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I said to the person sharing with me, I'm not a sinner. I haven't sinned. Because in my mind, you had to do something really bad, like rob a bank or kill somebody to be a sinner. And then he had me read Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, which says, If you look at a woman with lust for her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. I just had the wind knocked out of me. That was the first moment of realization that I was a sinner. I didn't know how to look at a woman any other way. This was like my life. Paul hits them right where they're at. And he punches each people group right in the stomach. And so they go from being, yeah, let's read his letter. To like, oh no. This is what's going on here. It's, it's like they're going to boot camp and the, the drill instructor is beating them into the ground. So they're like, there's nothing left of me. And now he's going to rebuild them. But he's still going after them. Now he's going after the Jew. So in verse 17, he says, if you bear the name Jew. So earlier on in the chapter, he, 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 he said in verse 3, but do you suppose this, O man? He was speaking generally. Now he goes right after the Jew. He says, now I'm speaking to the Jew. He says, but if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and boast in God, that's all good. Rely upon the law, boast in God. But if your reliance is upon the law, you're going to fail. That's what he's going to show them. And you boast in God, nothing wrong with boasting in God, and know his will, nothing wrong with knowing his will, and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. You think you yourself are a guide and a light? A corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment and the knowledge of the truth. So he's saying to them, you guys in this church in Rome, you Jews there in this church, you think you're great leaders because you have the law and everything? He says, well, let me ask you this. In verse 21, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? He goes right after them. 
I thought of all verses in the Bible for this young man to have turned to, Matthew 5, 28. If you look at a woman with lust for her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. That verse really convicted me. And I wasn't even a believer. These guys that he's speaking to in the church in Rome are believers. They're Jewish believers. They believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But he says, do you steal? And then he gets even more personal. After he says, he says, uh, uh, he says, and you who say that one should not commit adultery in verse 22, do you commit adultery? Gulp? Do you commit adultery? You know, I, I ask people a lot of questions. And especially when I'm trying to interrogate a young man who wants to marry a young woman that I really, really care for. And the young woman might ask me, would, would you check this guy out? And sometimes if, if they've asked me to check him out, it's not that I do this with delight, but I ask them a lot of questions, not to see, you know, if they're sinless. Not at all. I'm just trying to see how honest they are about things. And I will ask them some really detailed questions. But I've never asked a married man, do you commit adultery? Because I almost don't want to know. But, but you, you know, Paul is an apostle. And he's saying, do you commit adultery? You who teach, you should not commit adultery. That's one of your Ten Commandments, you Jews. I'll tell you, every Jew knows that adultery is wrong. I was not a good Jew. I was just a regular secular Jew, and I was not a good Jew at all. But I knew that adultery was wrong. And so when I read that verse, you've committed adultery already in your heart, I knew that I had done wrong. He said to them, you shall not steal. So what he's doing is he's pulling right out of the Ten Commandments. Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? I'll tell you, if there's a guy in the church committing adultery... And an apostle comes and looks him in the eye and says, Do you commit adultery? That man's going to be like... He's just going to slide right down onto the floor. You've got his attention now. This is exactly what Paul is doing. He is giving them a punch right in the stomach. So he's got their attention now. I'm not quite what I thought I was. Paul's figured me out. Then he gets very specific in the stealing. He says, he says, uh, um, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now that doesn't mean anything to us. What's he talking about? Well, we know from other writings, it was not uncommon for Jews to go into idol temples and rob them. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, because they were thieves. But they justified themselves on the basis of the word of God. It's because Gentiles would keep their money in idle temples, knowing that no Gentile is going to go in there and steal money because the idols are right there. But Jews, to prove that the idols had no power, would go into idle temples, of which they were all over in Rome, and even all over in the Roman world, you can go, you, when you travel through Israel, you will see idol temples all over the place, the remains of idol temples. They were everywhere. 
Gentiles would store their money, keep their money in idol temples, feeling that it was secure. And Jews would go in there to show that their idols mean nothing and rob the temples and justify themselves based upon the fact that your idols are nothing. And he goes right at them for this. So he gets very specific in where you're robbing from. Paul either had a word of knowledge or he had heard what was going on in the church in Rome. It looked really good, great faith, but he knew what was going on and he nailed it. And he got their attention. He said, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he quotes from the Old Testament and both in, in uh, uh, Isaiah 52.5 and Ezekiel 36.20, it says something like this, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the behavior of those Jews. And right away, he takes the Jew who justifies themselves and he relates them. He says, you're just like your father's that you have said, we never would have been like that if we lived in that day. And he's saying, oh, you're exactly like them today. And he goes at them all the more. And he, he talks about this circumcision and uncircumcision in, in, in this last portion. And this is not foreign to them. There are a number of verses that speak about circumcision and uncircumcision in the Old Testament. And so this is what he's referring to. And so, so for, for example, in, um, in, In Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. These words that he's using, there's three or four passages in the Old Testament that say, yes, you're circumcised in, your, in the flesh, yet you're uncircumcised because, you're, because of your heart. And he brings them right back into the set of people that were being judged in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They knew exactly what he was accusing them of. He says, because you're uncircumcised in your heart. He's knocking them down to see that there is no good in any one of them. That's why, that's why in, 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 uh, um, in verse, in chapter 3, verse 10, he's going to quote a large portion and we'll only look at a a part of it now in chapter 3, verse 10 of the book of Romans, it says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I mean, how much more explicit can you get? He said, you think you're pretty good? You're not. I mean, this man is just searing their hair off with this letter to them. And, and they've made reference to this in the past. They've made reference to this, his letters in the past. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10, verse 10, it says, for they, speaking about Paul, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. His letters are weighty and strong. Yeah, this is this is Paul's letters. Imagine getting a letter like this from Paul the Apostle. I mean, you would open that letter very timidly. 
because you're going to get fried. The guy is going to start out, tell you exactly how he's going to start out. He's going to start out thinking about something good about you and saying one good thing about you. And you think, this is pretty good. And then just blistering, blistering, he's going to go right at you. Then he's going to end and talk about, you know, how we long to see you and everything. (laughs) He's going to end nice at the end again. But this is how he is. Unapologetically, unabashedly, this is what Paul was doing. It says of him in in this 2 Corinthians 10.10, his speech was contemptible. I mean, when he came and spoke in a church, it was contemptible. It was like, who do you think you are? I mean, think about this. Have you ever gone to church and somebody was preaching and you felt beaten up and like, I'm not going to come back here anymore. I, I don't come to church to get beaten up. Well, what do you come for? Get your ears tickled? Is that what you want? The Bible talks about that. The scriptures are offensive. If you read the scriptures with open eyes and open heart, you will be offended at every sentence. Because remember, the division between good and evil runs right through the human heart. Not through nations, not through political parties, but through the human heart. And the Bible gets gets right at our hearts. We are evil. And he gets right at it. And this is what Paul is doing. And he is destroying each one of these people groups. The Greek, the culture Greek, and the pagan Greek. And he is speaking about the Jew. He says, you go around saying there should be no adultery. In Rome, there was much more free sex than than there is in our society today. And he goes right at the Jew. You know better because you have the law. You talk about the law, you know better. Do you commit adultery? He goes right at them. When we read the Word of God, this is what it should be like. Where we should just be burned at each sentence. And then, at the end, he picks up. Walk with me. Walk with me. But this is a good thing. Or else we think, I'm pretty good. I got the Bible. I know a few verses. Yep. What would you like to know? I can help you out here. Come into my office. Let me help you. And God says, let me start with you. Do you commit adultery? Gulp. And this is what he does. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Jesus gets at this. He gets at this. I want you to turn to John chapter 15. We're going to spend a little time here. John chapter 15. Jesus gets at this. He speaks about this. He tells us what we should be about and what we should be doing. He says in John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You see, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Jesus said, I'm the true vine. An interesting thing about that, he didn't just say, I'm the vine. He said, I am the true vine. 
Jesus is speaking in a metaphor, I doubt if we're supposed to say that Jesus was a plant. Jesus was a vine. You say, well, he said he was the tr- a true vine. Well, Jesus often spoke metaphorically. We're not to take every word literally. So if you say every word in the Bible is literally true, well, he, he reproved the disciples sometimes for taking him literally. He said, he said, uh, um, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they started, you know, bickering with each other. Who forgot to bring the bread? Jesus said, I'm not talking about bread. He said, be aware of the sin of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He took them literally, they took him literally and they got reproved for it. He says, I am the true vine. Jesus is not a plant, but he's speaking metaphorically. So even within the Bible, we want to take it literally, but there are still metaphors that are presented. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So the branch is already in Jesus. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. When you are in Jesus, you will be pruned. Why is life so hard? Because there's a vine dresser who's pruning you. It is not easy to be a believer. We always want to pass it off and have some excuse. I was I was sharing with a woman this week, and she shared how she was a, a, a Romanian. A, her her ancestors were Romanian gypsies, Romanian gypsies, and and uh, she said, you know, it, it's really hard when you have that type of ancestry to to really walk with Christ. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Because your ancestors were gypsies, it's harder for you than for anyone else? In the Bible, it says Jews were stiff-necked people. He spoke about us. spoke about me. But he doesn't give us then an excuse that, okay, it's okay because you're, you're, you're stiff-necked people. No, he still calls us to walk. You speak to an Australian, what do they say? They say, well, you know, we're all descendants of a, you know, from this, from this, uh, 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 English penal colony of Australia, so, you know, we all come from criminals anyway, and they justify themselves for their sin because of their heritage. Look, we're all stinking and rotten, regardless of our heritage. All of us. And it's not easy to walk the Christian walk, and he calls us to this. We are without excuse. We have no excuses. He says in verse 3 of of John chapter 15, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You're already clean. We're not dealing with salvation here. You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. We're not dealing with salvation. We're dealing with abiding in Jesus. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. This is what Jesus calls us to. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you. This is what it is. It is all comes out of a personal relationship with Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. Of ourselves, we are stinking and rotten. We have denied God. We have denied the truth. We have denied the testimony within nature. We think we follow his rules and regulations. 
yet our lives testify otherwise. If people could see the secrets in our heart, our relationships would fall apart. I'll tell you, if, if you could read the transcript of my thoughts, even thoughts that I have about you, <laughs> you'd be like, he doesn't like me, or he's terrible. or like, I mean, this is what humans struggle with. And this is why I love it when he says in verse 16, the secrets of men's hearts are going to be judged by God through Christ Jesus. My Jesus is my filter. My Jesus is the one who will protect me from this judgment that is coming. Because He is going to be my high priest, my filter to protect me. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is so wonderful. And Jesus is the one who calls us and says, Abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. You abide in me, I'll abide in you. That's a pretty good deal. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. You will not bear fruit without abiding in him. He says, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Could he have been more explicit? How would you like him to say this? He said it again, abide in me and I in you. Without that, you can't do anything. Without a depth of relationship with Jesus, you will not succeed. I know of no other way than to have a daily time with the Lord. This is the tried and true testimony. You speak with people that have walked with God for decades and decades and decades. Find some of those in the seniors class in this church who have walked with God. Those who love the Lord are in fire for the Lord and have done great things for the Lord. Every day, every day of their lives, they're in the Word of God. There is no promise of blessing for three days a week. It is blessing every day. Every day comes for everyday meditation on the Word of God. Every day get in the Word of God. And don't just sit there and say, well, God just speaks to me in my mind. Yes, He can. But your mind does funny, crazy things. You've got to be in the Word of God to be properly directed. Properly directed. In the word of God. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. If anyone, in, in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. He's not talking about salvation here. You're already clean. He's talking about effectiveness. If you're not abiding in me, you're not going to be bearing any fruit. You're going to dry up. You're going to dry up. It says the same thing in Psalm 1. If you don't spend time in His Word, you're going to dry up and you're going to be a a tree that's going to dry up and be like chaff which blows away. There will be no visible difference between you and a person of the world, between me and a person of the world, if I do not spend time in the Word of God every day. This is what He's saying to them. You'll just get burned up. And I'm going to sift you away. You're not gonna, you're not gonna stay in the church very long. You'll drift out. I don't want you to be a burden on other people. You'll be moved right on out. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You see the ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you? Before that is, you abide in me, and my word abides in you. Because when you abide in Jesus, you're very careful what you ask for. You ask for things that you know are going to bring Him glory. 
This is how you get it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's just like John, he said in John chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. The Holy Spirit's already there. But Jesus said, he and his Father will come and make their abode with the person who keeps the commandments of Jesus. He's going to say the same thing here in chapter 15 of John. He says, he says in verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. My Father is going to be glorified if you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If you are in the Word of God, you have so much to give, I urge you, become a part of the body of Christ. Do something in the church. Serve in some way. Don't take a vacation from this. Don't think that you need six month, you know, break from this because you served for all of a year and a half. Now you need a six month break. Give me a, a break. <laughs> you don't need that. You don't need that. You keep serving him. He says, this is how my father's glorified. He said in John chapter 17, verse 4, which we've looked at before. Jesus is praying. He says, I have glorified you on earth. Father, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you have given me to do. I've glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you have given me to do. Just in verse 9 of John chapter 15, Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. There's no question about his love for us. This is not a question of his love for us. He says, of course I've loved you. I've always loved you. He says this, abide in my love. Now, abiding is, is, is a little bit esoteric. What exactly do you mean abiding? How do, how do you abide? He says, okay, let me help you out. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How much more clear would you like them to be? What does abiding mean? You keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We're not talking about the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. We are talking about what is written in the New Testament that is, is been written by the apostles to instruct us. The things that were spoken by Jesus. You keep my commandments and you'll abide in my love. All of the Ten Commandments are embodied in New Testament commandments except the Sabbath day commandment. We're not bound to cease on the Sabbath day because that is actually Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So your being here on Sunday does not keep you in line with the Law of Moses Sabbath. Did you know that? You say, well, I just do it on Sunday. No. In the Law of Moses, you couldn't just do it on Sunday. It was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. That was, and, and that's not explicitly written anywhere in the New Testament that we should be observing that. But the other nine are there. And this is what Paul keys in on when he says to the Jew, do you steal? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Do you commit adultery? That's another one of the Ten Commandments. That's what he's focusing in on. Jesus said, you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
Why did God the Father love Jesus so much? He abode in that love because he kept his Father's commandments. That's pretty clear. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Joy is different than comfort. There is a sense of joy that goes way beyond the comfort of my surroundings. He says, my joy will be in you. And this is what I see throughout my relationship with students over decades and decades of working with them. I can tell you what a student's life is going to be like with high probability of success, what their marriage is going to be like, what their family is going to be like, based on their behavior. Do they walk with God? Do they spend time with Jesus? When you abide in Jesus, your life takes this flow where you find a spouse that equally loves Jesus. You raise children that love Jesus. You have surroundings that love Jesus. When you, I look at students' behavior, I can tell what their life is going to be like in a decade or two. God does the same thing. I'm not a prophet. I just look, you know, it's, for me it's data points. Just do this, you do this. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. It starts with relationship with God. If you do not know the Lord, I urge you to come to Him this day. If, if, you're, if you're on the internet watching or if you're here in, in person watching, I urge you to come to Him today if you do not know the Lord. It starts with that. Without getting Jesus in your life, you can't do any of this. You can't even start with this. And I will be glad to sit with you and to bring you right through the gospel and you will get saved that very day that I'm sure of. You just contact me. If you're here today, you just talk to me. I will share with the gospel with you today. If you're online, send me an email to... to uh, um, you can send it to tour at rice.edu. It'll come to me and, and uh, I will share with you. I'll set up a time within 48 hours. I'll set up a time to meet with you and share with you. And you'll get saved that very day. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the word of God. Blessed be your name. You are so good to us. Thank you, my Father. Lord, I pray that you would get hold of our hearts, that we would abide in you. Father, that we would see that there is no one who does good. No, not one. That we are not what we think we are. And Father, I pray that you get a hold of our hearts, that we would learn to abide and have a daily time with you. That tried and true method that works to daily have a time with you. I pray for these young people that they would start that pattern in their lives. That they would be not just nominalism, but it would be right there in their hearts. That there would be the circumcision of the heart set apart for you. And Lord, I commit this to you for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.